Indeed, O oh God, it is true that all of our hopes and all of our fears are met in that Christ child whose birth we celebrate. We understand, O oh God, that without him we are lost. Without him there is no payment for sin. Without him, sinful man would have never been reconciled to a righteous God. But with him, all of our hopes and all of our fears consummate. Oh God, he is the grand provision for the sinner's greatest need. And so, Father, it is with celebration that we meet this season. It is our delight and our joy to consider him afresh. We thank you for this, this picture of him in his humiliation, in his humbled state as a child, with all of the needs of every child. And then, oh God, the, the delight of singing of him as the, the Savior, the one who went to a cross so that we might be set free from the bondage of our sin and transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And so there we dwell. In this marvelous kingdom of light that is ours as the people of God, O oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Your word says how blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. And as a people whose sin has been forgiven by the shed blood of the Savior, we come to adore you this day. Father, fix our attention on you and all of your beauty. And might all that we do here today reflect that we are a people who love you, but are also growing to love you more. Take every dime of this, these monies and use them for one purpose. To expand the kingdom of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You follow as I read. I'm going to read um, out of Matthew chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read only three verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham <coughs> begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Did I ever tell you the story about uh, when I was doing my doctoral work, I took a course with R.C. Sproul and, on communication, and he... Um, Part of the class was we were all to read a certain portion of the scriptures in front of the class. And so he saved me to last because we had this uh, relationship. And so we, uh, the, the text was never announced to us. He just asked us to stand up and read the text. And so the, when, I, when it was my turn, he asked me to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The, what is called the begatitudes. The, uh, these, all these names that are so difficult to pronounce. So I have a special affinity for this text. But of course, it is a genealogy. As you know, there's two of them that are found in the New Testament, one here and one in the Gospel of Luke. 
But in this genealogy, which I'm sure you were moved to tears as I read it, um, in it there is illustrated the marvelous themes or theme of redemption that you find in the entire New Testament. Gang, from the very moment that Jesus Christ is mentioned, from the opening lines of the New Testament concerning it, we find a theme. The theme of all of redemptive history is found in this begatitude, this this list of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. You ask where? Well, ladies and gentlemen, in all honesty, in several places, you find that theme illustrated here. But we only have time to mention one of them this morning. I want to draw your attention to the mention or the inclusion of the name Tamar. Did you see her? In verse 3, by the way, the name Tamar refers to a woman. In the story about her life, uh, there is a, there's a story that's included in the Old Testament about Tamar. And in it, ladies and gentlemen, there is the most wonderful illustration of the theme of redemptive history. Uh, do you know the story about Tamar? Well, um, it's found in Genesis 38. And I want you to turn there with me. And we're going to find out a little bit more about Tamar. One of the women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, guys, the first thing I want you to, want you to notice, this is very profound, so listen closely. Genesis 38 is found in between Genesis 37 and Genesis 39. Did that move you? Did that grab you? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it really is interesting. Do you know what's in 37? Do you know what's in 39? 37 is the story about Joseph getting sold into slavery. You remember that one? The boy who had the coat of many colors and his brothers are jealous of him and they sell him into slavery? 39 is about Joseph uh, in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And in between those two stories about Joseph is inserted this story about Tamar. What in the world is the story about Tamar doing right in between 37 and 39? I don't know. I don't know why God saw fit to insert it here. But it must be because it has a real degree of importance itself. There it is. Stuck in the middle of this grand story that is being told about Joseph. By the way, there's another Tamar in Scripture. It was Absalom's sister. And I think she's mentioned someplace, uh, 2 Samuel 13 or so. She's the one that is raped by um, Amnon. You might remember. But don't confuse that Tamar with this Tamar. This is uh, the Tamar. It's very clear it's... Uh, Matthew 1 is referring to her because it mentions the two children that she bore. Now, we're not going to read Genesis 38, but I am going to tell you the story. The story about Tamar that has nothing to do with Joseph, completely unrelated to Joseph, but it's right in the middle of the story about Joseph. Let me tell you the story. You follow in your copies and 
You can check me out as I, as I unfold the story for you. First of all, we're told in verses 2 through 5 that Judah, does that ring a bell? Judah. Judah was the line through which Christ ultimately came. I think you know that. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. He shouldn't have been marrying a Canaanite woman, but he did. And from that marriage, they have three sons. You're told that in verses 2 through 5. The um, One of those sons, the oldest, whose name is Ur, marries Tamar. But unfortunately, Ur dies. You can find that in verses 6 and 7. And so Judah, Ur's father, Tamar's father-in-law, goes to son number two, whose name was Onan. And Onan is now instructed to take up his brother's widow and marry her and bear children. Well, Onan does that, but he obviously doesn't like the idea. And he does a very bad thing, and he is struck dead in verses 8 through 10. You can find that. And then... Judah, the father-in-law, tells Tamar to wait on son number three. Just hold on, and son number three will grow up, and I'll give you son number three. But he really didn't mean that. Because he very superstitiously blamed Tamar for the um, misfortune that had befallen sons number one and sons number, son number two. Now... So while Tamar is waiting on son number three to grow up so that she can marry him, his name is Sheila, Tamar, excuse me, Judah's wife, that Canaanite woman, dies. And with that event, ladies and gentlemen, the plot thickens. Um, we're told in verses 12 through 14 that after uh, the Canaanite woman dies, Judah's wife Judah, in his sorrow, decides he's going to pay a visit to his shepherds who are shearing the sheep. That's all in verses 12 through 14, guys. And so he decides to go out to the countryside, visit his shepherds, and um, check on how the, the, the shearing is going. Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who has already been widowed twice hears of the plan that he has to go to the countryside. And so she develops a plan of her own. What she does, that is what Tamar does, is dress up like a prostitute and plant herself right on Judah, her father-in-law's path. Judah sees her, uh, this great ancestor of Christ's, notices this woman who is on the wayside there, dressed as a prostitute, and works out a deal with her to pay for her um, services. And so then we're told in verse 18, by the way, uh, the, the, the details of the deal are not important. What is important is that when this is all over, Tamar ends up with Judah's signet, his cord, and his staff. Now look at verse 18, if you've got it open. Um, 
Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Uh Uh-oh. His daughter-in-law is now impregnated by her father-in-law and he doesn't know who she is. So. Judah, being the fine, upstanding man that he is, sends the goat over, a real goat, a goat to pay for the services of the prostitute. And when he sees or sends this goat uh, as payment to the woman, he finds that he cannot locate the woman. And he goes to uh, some of the people. Look at verse 23. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. That is, he sent the goat as payment. He couldn't find her. And uh, Judah says, well, we don't want this to get out. So just let her keep the staff, the signet, and the cord. It's okay. So, um... Of course, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Tamar is back at home, Judah's house, with Judah's staff, his cord, and his signet, and his baby, which turns out to be twins. So the news gets out, and I want you to notice Judah's response in verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. (laughs) Now watch what Judah says. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned He's indignant at this kind of horrible behavior on the part of his daughter-in-law. Can you spell uh, hypocrite? Well, Judah has been outfoxed. They bring her out all right, and with her, She brings a signet ring, a cord, and a staff. And she looks at all the people who are about to burn her and says, The one who owns these is the father of my child. Oops. Judah has been caught. And he states that in verse 26. So Judah acknowledged them and said, that is, acknowledged the cord and the staff and the signet ring. And he said, she, Tamar, has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. Um, now, guys, that's the story of Tamar. Pretty X-rated, don't you think? 
Not only is it the story of Tamar, but it's also the story of Judah. Judah is also mentioned in the genealogy, and you know that name. He's the one, he's one of the twelve sons of Jacob, one of the great tribes of Israel, out of whom comes the lineage, the line of the Savior. Now, um, here's my question, ladies and gentlemen, in this wonderful Christmas time of the year. Did you get the drift of that story? Do you see the import of it? Because what you see in Genesis 38 about Tamar and Judah, I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, is the theme of all of redemptive history. And you get this woman mentioned in the genealogy of Christ, along with her father-in-law Judah, two people who I think illustrate for the rest of us the glory and the wonder of grace. Judah and Tamar. And there are numerous others that are mentioned in the genealogy. But Judah and Tamar, and this is their story. And they, ladies and gentlemen, are caught up and swept into the kingdom of God by a God of all glory and grace who is willing to be identified with people like this. You know, my friends, the pages of the Bible overflow with flawed people. You come to the New Testament and Jesus identifies himself with a host of seedy characters. Jesus has this bad habit of of collecting disreputables. And he called them disciples. Do you remember the story, the great story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Remember that? Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, how Luke 15 begins? Verse 1, check this out. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 begins this way. The Pharisees are complaining against Jesus. And here's their complaint. He receives sinners and he eats with them. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that he receives sinners and eats with them? Because Jesus has this, this propensity to pick up a bunch of disreputables and by his grace sweep them into this kingdom of his. Jesus is attracted to the otherwise unattractive. If I could further my thought just a little bit, ladies and gentlemen. Have you ever noticed how often people find God in the wilderness? People like Jacob, Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist, Paul. Do you know what the wilderness was? The wilderness was the place of forsakenness. It was the place of aloneness. It was the place of weakness. The point is, where is it that these people meet with God? Not in the halls of power and influence. No, no. Because, very interestingly, ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament tells us that God's people aren't often found in those kind of places. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says there's not many wise. 
Not many powerful. Not many mighty. No, no. Where you're going to find them is in their, their locales of weakness and anonymity and forsakenness and aloneness. Salvation always happens to the weak and the powerless, not the strong and the powerful. God rarely works through the insiders, ladies and gentlemen, and frequently works through the outsiders. God works for and with the poor and the marginal and the excluded and the oppressed. To use Jesus' words, he always gravitates towards the sick, not the healthy. Jesus um, is found frequently hanging around weakness, not power. His, his world is often the world of failure, not achievement. I want to read you a, an email I got a couple of years ago. This guy suggests that he's creating a new sociological category. The sociological category is called failures. Failures. That is, people who fail on a regular basis, people like me. I am a lay pastor of a small, not growing church. I am not ordained. I am not seminary trained. I was asked to leave both Bible colleges I attended. I am divorced and remarried. On any given day, I am capable of being a jerk with my wife and family. I am terminally insecure, which causes me to compensate with bouts of arrogance. At times, people irritate me and I hide from them. I am impulsive, which causes me to say things I shouldn't and make promises I cannot keep. I am inconsistent. My walk with Christ is a stuttering, stumbling, bumbling attempt to follow Him. At times, His presence is so real I can't stop the tears. And then without warning, I can't find Him. Some days my faith is strong, impenetrable, immovable, and some days my faith is weak, pathetic, Helpless, knocked about like a paper cup floating on the ocean in the middle of a hurricane. I have been a Christian for 45 years. I am familiar with the vocabulary of faith, and I am often asked to give advice about matters of faith. But I am still a mess. I am light years away from being able to say with Paul, imitate me. I am 56 years old and still struggling, and still struggling, a flawed, clumsy, unstable follower of Jesus. A bona fide failure. That bothers a lot of people. Over the years, they have expressed their displeasure with my failings. Some have abandoned me. Some have even written me out of the kingdom. But not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus has this incredible propensity, ladies and gentlemen. To identify himself with people like that. If I could continue this thought, how about the, the Old Testament? You know what you find in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, besides this story in Genesis 38, we watch in the Old Testament as God works with the wrong people. He's always working with the second son, not the first son. That's not the way you're supposed to do things. He, he works with Abel, not Cain. Uh, Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. He, he, he works through the barren woman. The, the unlovely woman. It's always Leah, not Rachel. Or Sarah, not Hagar. 
You know, the best illustration I know of his working with, with, with the barren woman is in Exodus chapter 1, verses, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, or at least portions of chapter 2. Do you know the story about Moses? When Moses was born and Pharaoh was trying to um, get rid of all the newborn babies and, and Moses' mother makes this little boat and puts him in the river and, you know, Pharaoh's daughter. You remember that story? Well, it's very interesting to me, ladies and gentlemen, that the heroes of that story are two midwives. In fact, the king of Egypt is never given a name, but the midwives are. Do you know what a midwife was? Normally, they were women who couldn't bear children themselves. And so, in a culture where women were only a couple of notches above farm animals, they were even lower than that because they couldn't bear children. They were barren, useless. And so, who does God use to, who does he choose to elevate and place a spotlight on? Oh, two midwives who are heroes. Because God has the propensity to work with people who are not in the halls of influence and power. Not the insiders. Oh, no. It's the outsiders. Speaking of women... Do you remember who it was that Jesus first or first appeared to after his resurrection? It was a woman, but not just any woman. This was Mary Magdalene, the former demon-possessed prostitute. What does that sound like to you, ladies and gentlemen? I'll tell you what it sounds like to me. It sounds like grace. It sounds like a God who is absolutely too good to be true. A God who has seen fit to identify, who is willing to be identified with people whose name begin with a T, like Tamar. Gang, what I'm suggesting is what you find in the very opening Lines, the very opening vignettes, the very opening statements of information concerning Jesus Christ. You get mentioned even in the genealogy people who are illustrations of how God sees fit to identify himself with what this man called. A new sociological category. Failures. You see, gang, the, the story in Genesis 38 is not intended to point you towards Tamar. The story in Genesis 38 is intended to point you to the God of grace who is willing to identify himself with Tamar. And with you. You know, guys, religion, and I think I hope you know what I mean by that term. That is, the commonly acceptable notion about how religion works, we'll just call religion. Religion says to you this. It says, if you work at it hard enough, you'll be qualified for eternity. Live a good enough life And God will welcome you. 
Christianity, on the other hand, says that Jesus Christ is willing to qualify the unqualified. That Jesus Christ offers his good life for my bad one. That Jesus Christ is the one who welcomes the unwelcome. I got an email this week which I think summarizes it all. Because it's not only true of Islam. It's true of all of the cults. It's true of all false religion. The, the, the quote went like this. In Islam, Allah requires that you sacrifice your son for him. In Christianity, God sacrifices his son for you. Gang, all of religion says ultimately, clean yourself up. Make yourself worthy. Do enough good little deeds. And then when it's all said and done, God will kind of honor your goodness by allowing you into his heaven. All religion says that. Except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who says that Jesus Christ lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died. And because he did, the unqualified gets qualified. Mike Iaconelli, who is, um, I don't know if you remember the name Mike Iaconelli, but he's a wild man. Um, Mike Iaconelli used to be the editor of the Wittenberg Door. Did anybody ever read the Wittenberg Door? Oh, that was just almost blasphemous. But, but Mike Iaconelli tells the story about an, a, a period in his life where he and his wife were able to afford, uh, afford a housekeeper. Uh, he said it wasn't true of all of our life, but there was a time in his life where they could afford a housekeeper. And he said, I hated the day when the housekeeper came. Because on the day that the housekeeper came, my wife and I would spend all morning cleaning the house, getting ready for the housekeeper. Because we didn't want the house to be dirty when the housekeeper arrived. Or otherwise, what would the housekeeper think? Now, isn't that stupid? Well, ladies and gentlemen, my point is we do that with God. That's the way we deal with God. We kind of try to clean up all of our dirty lives before we go to Him. Thinking that now that we're a little bit cleaner, we're more worthy of Him accepting us. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the opposite is true. Until we admit that we're a mess. Until we acknowledge how unlovely and unattractive and how broken and lost we are. That's when Jesus shows up. Because according to the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is attracted to the unattractive. He, he prefers lost ones over found ones. He prefers the losers over the winners, the sick over the healthy, the broken instead of the whole, the messy and over the unmessy, the crippled instead of the uncrippled. You know, I told this story, oh, I've, maybe I've told it a couple of times, but it, it bears repeating. It's a story about the little boy who 
who uh, longed to have his own puppy, and so he saved for months, worked cutting grass, saving enough money so he could buy his own puppy. And so he, they, big day finally came, and so his mother takes him down to the pet store, and the pet shop owner takes him over to the window to, to pick out a puppy. And so he looks at the, the litter of the puppies there in the store window, and he, he thinks about it a minute, and he says, um, I'd like to have the one in the corner. And the, the pet shop owner said, son, that's not the one that you want. He said, don't you see how he, how he keeps seated? He's not running around like the rest because he's got something wrong with his leg. And, and he'll never be able to play and run with you like the other puppies. Choose another puppy. And the little boy, without a moment's hesitation, looked at the man and lifted up his pants leg to reveal a, a brace, a chrome brace that was attached to his leg. He showed the pet shop owner the brace, and then he looked at his the pet shop owner and said, No, I... I want the one in the corner. And it turns out that the thing that had disqualified others from choosing that puppy is the very thing that qualified him to be chosen by the little boy. Gang, the very things that disqualify us from religion, that is our uncleanness and our failings, and our sin and our self-centeredness, the very things that disqualify us from being accepted by Islam is the very things that qualify us to be chosen by Jesus. Because he has this uncanny propensity to identify himself with people like Judah and Tamar. My friend, if you have been told all of your life that you're a nobody and perhaps you thought it and believed it yourself, it doesn't matter. God's grace is extended to anybody but especially the outsider, especially those who understand that my real home is the wilderness. That's where I met him. Ladies and gentlemen, what you've heard this morning is the gospel of grace. Tamar illustrates it. Judah illustrates it. Perez illustrates it. Jimmy Young, he illustrates it too. Anybody want to add your name to that list of failures? Let's pray. Our Father, I do thank you for the privilege that is mine to, to point out that Jesus Christ has the 
gracious propensity to attract the unattractive, to come alongside the crippled, to identify with the marginal and the outsider. And when we finally realize that that's us, that's when the Lord Jesus shows up. He's not found in the the halls of the powerful and the mighty and the and the self-sufficient. But he shows up for those of us who know that everything about us is messy. And I pray, Father, that if you have led people here today who who have a past that is not something they want to talk about or even admit, that you'll assure them that you are the God of all glory and grace. A God who so eagerly accepts the broken and the crippled and the, and the sick. The God who had his son die for me. The God who exchanged my bad life for his son's good one. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that what Tamar stands for might be the very truth we celebrate as we remember our coming Savior. Draw us nigh, O God. Draw us to the place where we understand that we don't clean ourselves up so that we can come to you. We bring all the dirt and find grace to help in all of our need. Father, I, uh, I pray that you'll use every mention of his name to expand his kingdom. We pray in his name. And for his sake.